I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man and probably more than just bread more than just surviving is needed to feel that dignity that lyndon johnson was speaking of bread and roses the phrase to the extent it is known at all is linked to the lawrence mass textile strike of 1912 now what does that slogan mean and how might the idea of bread and roses actually be crucial to winning the presidency in 2020. Our guest today, Ed Simon, argues rather convincingly, I must say, that the Trumpers know something that Democrats do not as of yet, and that is that, in his words, those that will be most successful will be those that speak of meaning and purpose in addition to material concerns, end of quote. His article on History News Network is... This advice, Democrats must offer Americans bread and roses to counter national conservatism. Ed Ed Simon, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me back on. I'm glad to be here. Ed Simon is the associate editor of the Marginalia Review of Books, a channel of the Los Angeles Review of Books. He holds a Ph.D. in English from Leahy University and is a regular contributor at several different sites. Well, in 1992, James Carville, who was campaign strategist of Bill Clinton's successful 1992 presidential campaign against the sitting president, George H.W. Bush. And Carville is known for many things, including this advice to candidate Bill Clinton. It's the economy, stupid. Fast forward to 2019, and according to Ed Simon, were Democrats to limit their message to the economy, we would likely lose to Donald Trump. Now, it's not that the economy is all that great for most Americans, but Trump quite successfully offers not just bread, but a twisted, artificial version of roses, too. Never mind that he's a fascist and a racist. His fans are loving the new sense of meaning and purpose handed down from Donald Trump. Boy, talk about outside the box. Well, to get started... Talk about the the origin. What does the slogan "bread and roses" mean? Sure, sure. So it's a, a term, a phrase that has kind of a long history uh, in Western culture. Arguably, first variation of it goes back to the ancient Roman physician Galen, who said something. I'm paraphrasing here, but he was like, "If you have two loaves of bread, sell one to buy roses or to buy flowers." Because uh, bread nourishes uh, the body, but roses or flowers nourish the mind, right? So the idea behind it is that uh, we can speak to people's material conditions. And, of course, you have to speak to people's material conditions, right? True. Obviously, no question. Yeah. Uh, issues of, of economics are crucially important. But that any sort of um, successful politics will also, in some sense, speak generally to the spirit. And I don't necessarily mean that in like an overtly religious way. 
but that could, of course, be included with it as well, but that politics has to give people some sort of meaning or purpose, both individually and kind of collectively as well. Uh, and that one of the things is the phrase is most oftentimes associated with the formulation, uh, give me bread, but give me roses also. And it's associated with a strike largely of immigrant women at the Lawrence right. Textile uh, Factory in the, the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, and um, it was a slogan that was used, it was chanted, it was used in banners, it was appropriated by various radical and socialist poets. And it was to kind of emphasize that any sort of socialist program wasn't just offering to people um, work, but offering them the dignity of work, right? The kind of purpose uh, or meaning or the word that I use is transcendence of, 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 of things, right? To kind of uh, give people a general sense of importance in their lives. Yeah, to feel some sense of, of meaning, because certainly millions of Americans are working, they're getting by, but as we know, you know, commuting, uh, you know, an hour or so a day in heavy traffic and doing a job that you really don't like, coming back, doing it again and again and again and again, uh, is not that satisfying. So there's some kind of, I think, some kind of human need for something to, to connect us. And, you know, it, it's been used throughout history to inspire people, usually by kind of bad guys, but but not always. Well, you write that our reality in 2019 is that not only do we face a deepening economic crisis, but a pandemic of spiritual malaise as well. Mm. What do you mean by that? How does it, as you say, connect such disparate phenomena from the insanity of anti-vaxxers with the epidemic of opioid addiction. How, how are those things all tied in with the kind of need for roses and spiritual malaise? So, sure. So I think the important thing is to kind of be able to identify the totalizing worldview under which we live in, in our current economic, political, and cultural system. Uh, and that's the, the word neoliberalism, right? And you uh-huh. hear the word, and it, it takes a little bit of time to unpack it, especially if people are thinking of liberalism uh, in terms of kind of the positive use of the word, as you know, most of us on the political left have historically used it, right? Neoliberalism doesn't necessarily refer to that. Right. Rather, That's neoliberalism true. refers to kind of um, a very pro-market, um, totalizing understanding of how capitalism is supposed to be basically a force that, you know, infiltrates and regulates every aspect of life because it is theoretically supposed to be the best way in which to organize the society, Right. Uh, and neoliberalism is associated, you know, with the libertarian right. Um, and so people like Ronald Reagan, historically Margaret Thatcher, you know, Ronald Reagan, arguably, and it's a contested term, sort of the first neoliberal president. I don't know if people would disagree with me on that, but I think that's something that somebody could could argue. But it's also right. something that you see among centrist Democrats, sort of triangulated third-way Democrats, sure. Bill Clinton was, of course, an example of a, of a neoliberal president. For sure. The way in which I connect that to this sort of spiritual malaise uh, is that because this sort of, the values of neoliberalism, this kind of like ruthless individualism, the idea that everything has to be uh, marketed or that everything is for sale, you kind of see that taken to its logical conclusion with the hyper-atomization in our culture where people are so isolated and so alienated and so individualized that there's not really any sense of collective, there's not really any sense of solidarity or of community. Um, you know, it, it's rife throughout the gig economy, right? Um, you see this kind of, uh, in, in the turn 
towards kind of fantastic explanations for things that if people are looking for a source of meaning, which is not supplied by a system that is most concerned with how much something costs rather than how much something is worth, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that people will gravitate towards um, pseudoscientific or irrational or super superstitious explanations for things and the kind of pandemic of addiction that is really kind of decimating uh, large swaths of this country. And so I think what's important is that we correctly identify neoliberalism, which is anti-union, anti-regulation, uh, very much a pro-market ideology. And we identify what's wrong with it economically, but then also look at what the sort of, broadly speaking, spiritual or meaning-based implications of that are, and recognize that in a really pernicious, malicious, and malignant kind of way, uh, a politician like Donald Trump is able to identify that people are lacking a meaning in their lives and give them this really kind of awful faux meaning instead. So instead of kind of having a, a sense of purpose or solidarity with Americans as your fellow citizens, he gives people this sort of sense of belonging or ownership that's based on racial or gender or religious lines. Uh, and that that is this kind of like fake meaning that he's giving people, um, but it's very effective yes. in terms of, of getting votes and organizing people and making them think that there's something, um, you know, purpose-driven there when maybe there isn't. And I've certainly seen, and anybody who's listening who's, you know, seen the, the Trump rallies or just spoken with any Trump people, there's something, it's not about economics to them, not at all. It's not about putting food on the table or driving a nice enough car. No, it's about somehow somehow feeding the spirit with perhaps artificial roses. Uh, and, and, you know, it's as you talk about here. And, uh, you know, certainly the reaction against this mindless uh, globalism and neoliberalism uh, has brought a lot of reaction. And one of the mm. problems that we face in the United States these days, as you mentioned, is the opioid crisis. And, you know, hiring more police, uh, you know, things like that, education. If people are needy spiritually and the opioid stuff can make them feel numb, you know, if we don't get to the roots of the problem, it's like wanting to, to stop immigration, from, from Central America. Well, if we continue to support, you know, brutal fascist dictatorships with drug gangs down there, well, there's going to be more immigration. So if we're not sure. speaking to the, the, the needs that you're talking about, there's the uh, opioid addiction there, and I don't see anybody doing that. And, you know, a lot of people have a sense, I think more in Europe, about globalism and neoliberalism uh and there we have such uh racist fascist authoritarians like Viktor orban of hungary the mm -hmm. alternative for germany fascist right wing the league in italy etc where is the left perhaps in europe even i don't know if there is one offering i mean i know there's a left but i don't know if they're offering an alternative to soulless globalism and neoliberalism I think that one of the things we have to keep in mind, too, is when we're talking about all of these sort of various partisan factions and philosophical and ideological ways of orienting certain political parties or groups, is that we really do have to distinguish, too, between the left 
and liberals in a more centrist sense. Right? That's true. Yeah, uh, and there's obviously difference. connections and similarities and crossovers and, and means for coalition building and support. I think the thing is, is that historically, if we're looking at the, the far left and the far right, mm. is that the far left offers kind of a, a meaning or a transcendence in a sense of um, collective ownership, in a sense of solidarity, in a sense of the sort of universal rights of humans uh, and human fellowship and those sorts of things. The far right offers meaning, un, as I would interpret it, illusory, transitory, arbitrary things. So basically they offer meaning through membership in a certain racial group or a certain ethnic group or whatever. Uh, liberalism in a centrist sense, I think, historically, I mean, it, it's not that it can't offer meaning, but mm. at this point <laughs> in our history, I think that the centrist Democrats are not offering that, right? They're basically offering... Um, that they're not Donald Trump, which is certainly good enough in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, but I think that that's a thin gruel on which to sustain <laughs> ourselves for the coming generation. And I think that uh, part of the problem is, is if you're still really embracing this kind of like deregulated, uh, market-friendly economic approach that has gotten us into so much trouble, the only thing you have to really offer people then are kind of more of that which got us into these problems. And I don't think anybody except for like a, a small percentage of the voting public maybe is particularly enthused by that right, right? Oh. so you you do have uh you know i think that you raised a really important point earlier that economic grievance i don't think was the no. sole reason or the most important thing that got trump into office i think and especially if you look at it demographically the white suburban uh middle class that overwhelmingly voted for Trump. So the kind of like white working class explanation of who his supporters were is not the whole story, and it's a way of kind of passing responsibility on the people who in a lot of ways have been victimized by the economy, right? It's people who are doing pretty well uh, who have voted for, for Trump. But I do think that there is this spiritual malaise that has kind of created a vacuum into which he could go. Uh, and I think part of that is, you know, you mentioned these rallies that he holds. Uh, if you spend any time kind of like uh, watching these rallies, they have um, a sense of almost being like a revival meeting. Yes. Something that uh, Jeff Charlotte, who's a, a reporter who covers religion, he's the executive producer of the recent Netflix series, The Family, which is about the C Street Center and the sort of international fellowship, the kind of um, organization between theocratic fundamentalists and, and people in the U.S. government. Uh, and he's he's attended a lot of these rallies, and he said that they have this feeling of like an old-fashioned kind of revival, which is funny because, you know, Trump is such a almost transparently, comically non-pious person, non-moral person. Uh, but he has a way of kind of whipping and frothing his crowd into a frenzy that bears a lot of similarities to, you know, in American culture, things like the Great Awakenings or the religious revivals, and in Europe, certainly darker currents of the far right. Yes. So I think that, you know, the fact that, like, Trump lies, the fact that he seems unintelligent, none of that matters right. in terms of beating him. Unfortunately, if there's anything that we've learned now that we're on four years of him in national politics, it's that pointing out that he's wrong about stuff makes no difference. So I think that people have to think of this commensurate with the full kind of impact of what he is, and then more importantly the larger kind of trends that he represents. And I think part of that is being able to um, cognizantly phrase a politics of meaning for people. 
uh, and that until we do that, um, it's going to be a lot of dark days ahead. We've had enough dark days already, but they could get darker. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, folks. Our guest today is Ed Simon, uh, who is an associate editor for Marginalia Review of Books. And he's written an article on History News Network titled, Democrats Must Offer Americans Bread and Roses to Counter National Conservatism. And when I think about, as you say, okay, Trump is not real bright. He's just an incredible liar. I don't think he knows the difference. Hillary Clinton's ads in the 2016 campaign were just Trump is bad, Trump is bad, Trump is bad. Mm-hmm. Who won? Obviously, she didn't offer anything for people to grab onto. There was a lack of message. Trump had a message, make America great again. Uh and there was no no talk of meaning and purpose in addition to material mm-hmm. concerns uh so the most that it's hardly a common takeaway from the trump win Mo, what of what meaning and purpose does he speak well i think it's interesting you know when we talk about missteps in the clinton campaign and they they were of course numerous right i think it is also always important to remember that she got Three million more votes than Trump right. did, um, and they were they were geographically scattered in a way that, knowing how our system works, they were not helpful. And so, right. uh, of course, that's not an exoneration because we have the system we have, and yes. you have to figure out how to win within that system. I, I do think that you you raise a really important point that um, you know, considering how neoliberalism has significantly hollowed out this country where we can say that we're economically doing well, but we're economically doing well by the standards of what? Of Wall Street, right? Uh, the income disparity is is ever increasing to Gilded Age levels. Right. People are working, but they're not working good jobs. Unions have been completely decimated. And I think in that context, the problem was, is that, you know, the Clinton campaign would kind of react to the Trump campaign. And you would have things like, I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, in answer to Trump's uh, Make America Great Again, the Clinton campaign floated the idea of America is already great because America is good. And it was, it's, I don't want to quite say that that's like a cynical campaign slogan, but it's um, not inspiring. It's a kind of incompetent one, right? It's not really keeping in, you know, if people aren't doing that well, promising to keep things the same is not a winning formula <laughs> there. And, and there's something that's a little yeah. um, self righteous about that, right? In a lot of ways that I think. Uh, I don't. I don't think that Trump voters were going to necessarily, or a lot of them weren't necessarily going to vote for for Democrats one way or the other. Though right. obviously there are some who who would have. I think it's more that the 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 left leaning side was completely turned off for that. I mean, I think what really put Trump into office was people who didn't vote or couldn't vote because yeah. of voter disenfranchisement. But that's an entirely different issue. So I, I think that my takeaway from that is that to answer your question in kind of a roundabout way sure. uh, is uh, Trump campaigns and governs in slogans, and they are easy to understand slogans. Yes, and they're from my vantage point pernicious, awful sort of slogans and perspectives. But I think for people who thrill to that, it gives them uh, a sense of belonging, a sense of membership, a sense of purpose and meaning. Uh, and maybe some of those people are unreachable. They like this kind of malignant uh, meaning. Well, uh, maybe others uh, are are redeemable in that in that regard. But I think that at the very least, the kind of steal our own resolve 
we need to have a, a subsequent kind of sense of meaning as well, right? And I think kind of, um, you know, running on anything less than sort of the, the most progressive of economic yes. social platforms is going to be a, a non-starter because nobody, you know, nobody is on the left is thrilling towards deregulation or whatever, right? You have to, you have to return to kind of some, some left-wing roots and explain how in that system you really have an opportunity for meaning, right? Like if you're working three minimum wage jobs and you're sleeping five hours a night just to kind of like get food for your kids, yeah. you're not you're not thinking about transcendence and meaning. You're hoping that like you know your checks clear so you can pay your rent. Like it's a it's a different. Um, it, it it doesn't supply the possibilities for kind of self definition that bluntly more progressive economic policies would. Well, and and the, I think the elitism that our, our nominee projected, uh, and you know, sort of talked down to people when you when you tell people that you know you're a basket of deplorables, they're going to look for something. I mean, talk about something that feeds the hunger for meaning and purpose. That that's got to be yeah. it, and. I, I, I'm hesitant to compare Trump with the real bad. Well, but in the early 1930s and late 20s in Italy, the theatrics used at the rallies for Hitler and Mussolini, they also offered a kind of transcendent, not not about bread or economics. Uh, I mean, Germany was in bad shape after the First World War. Uh, I think spiritually yeah. and psychologically, not just economically. So how is it, it, what is it about his rallies that so resonate with human psychology? I think that's something we need to figure out. What is it about Trump's rallies and those of his, his uh, fascistic uh, predecessors so resonates yeah. with human psychology? Well, I, I think the, thing, the first thing to remember is that Trumpism is a political phenomenon, but it's basically a type of religion as well. And and I think that um, whenever we're talking about politics at all, I don't think we can keep it divorced from its kind of like theological origins in some way. I'm not saying that you have to like believe in God to, to work in government or anything like that. That's not what I'm going no, down. But I, I am saying that oftentimes, and this is a phrase uh, from John Gray, who's a British philosopher, he says politics is theology by other means, right? Hmm. That we're never quite as secular as we think that we are. And that a lot of different theologies are sometimes sublimated into otherwise secular political systems. So fascism is a is a political theology. It's a type of it's a type of religion that instead of putting um, the idea of a transcendent god or whatever at its core, puts nation and race at its center. Right. And Trumpism does something similar. Gray, who is himself an atheist, but a type of like I guess you could say religiously curious atheist. Uh, would argue that the left also offers kind of um, a type of secularized religion, that socialism or Marxism have, like, at their core, a type of religious concern to an extent, right? I, I don't disagree with that, and I don't have a problem with that either. I, in fact, if anything, I think that the way you anch- answer a type of dark, malignant religion like Trumpism is by offering a better religion that instead of having race and nation and ethnicity at its core has equality and justice and solidarity at its core, right? I think the problem with technocratic 
wonky liberalism yeah. isn't the wonkiness per se because being able to actually do stuff is important right i mean i go back to the, the mario cuomo quote where he said you uh campaign in poetry and you govern in prose and i think there's some truth to that yeah. right like you want to have people that know the math who are actually doing things as well i don't want to hit expertise at all but you have to have it can't be unto itself that can't be an end unto itself it has to be a means towards something else and I think what you're asking yourself is, what is that something else? And the problem with, as I see it, the, the DNC or the sort of uh, more conservative wing of the Democratic Party Corporate wing, is yeah. that they think that being smart and having expertise and, and all of these things are in and of themselves good, right? And that that should be self-evidently why they should govern. And I think the problem is, is that that is not good enough. You have to offer a reason why that expertise is good, what it's furthering, right? And that's why in the article I sort of argue repeatedly that we have to move towards a more vibrant and obvious left. We have to have left solutions to things, or left purposes for things, because I think that that gives people a sense of uh, belonging, a sense yes. of meaning, a sense of purpose and transcendence that just kind of saying, I'm very smart and will run things really well doesn't necessarily. <laughs> You're right. That's not a factor in human psychology. And as you were talking, I was remembering the German flags, the red flag with the black swastika in the middle, and having that everywhere. This It's a, it's a mandala, you know, a circle organized into four, which somehow, as Jung knew, resonates with the human psychology. And it, it kind of that symbol sort of inspires people and say, I am part of that. That's who I am. That gives me meaning. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't have that as yet for a, a Trump thing, but there is something to learn from that, I think, something that, that people can see. And I think probably in the old Soviet Union, the old hammer and sickle was probably somewhat uh, similar. Uh, both of them, luckily, are not around anymore. But then again, you know, a lot of the, uh, the far right is, is coming back to life. Uh, and so the struggle, as you say, is spiritual as well as it is political. And, and I have to say, I found uh, among the various Democratic candidates early on, Marianne Williamson. She is somebody who is clearly spiritual, who touches mm -hmm. that vein that we're talking about here. She's not going to be the nominee, but there's something about that. You know, people have belittled that and, and said, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think there's really something. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, no, no, it's interesting you bring uh, Marianne Williamson up because I had uh, an article in the New Republic about a month ago or so that was specifically about her. Uh, and one of the things I said is I basically am agreeing with you uh, completely about how to understand Williamson. And, you know, like I make clear, like, uh, you know, as a registered Democrat, I'm not voting for Marion Williamson in the primary. Like, I don't think she's going to be the nominee. Right. That being said, I do think, as weird, if I can use that word, as, as she can be, she's diagnosing a real problem um, that a lot of other candidates aren't. When she talks about, um, I think she used the phrase dark forces or something to describe Trump, and I was like, yeah, that's how you have to understand Trump. I mean, Trumpism is a type of... Um, you know, almost a cult, dark spirituality. Yeah. And I think that, like, you can't just pretend that he's a politician 
like normal, right? Yeah. I mean, he comes out of the mainstream Republican Party. They, he's kind of their Frankenstein monster. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to exonerate <laughs> the traditional conservatives that let that happen. But I think when, yes. when Williamson uh, makes that point about Trump, I think that the Democrats would be smart to listen to her. I yes. think that she makes a really clear and compelling and most importantly truthful case about what Trumpism is, what it represents, and what needs to be done to defeat it. I mean, I think she should be heeded. I think she should be listened to. Yeah, she is. She had a, a good article just uh, recently about uh, about peace, you know, and how we have to, we can talk about that and, and have, you know, a way that's something people can connect with. And I, th- I find it fascinating that she keeps raising money. She's bringing in Lots and lots and lots, probably hundreds of thousands of people who the Democratic Party, the normal DNC Democrats, they don't even go after that. They don't even talk about any of these, you know, meaning and things like that. But the potential is there. Anything with her, too. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, just like, you know, at the second debate, when you watch Williamson, uh, she was like one of the few candidates that talked about um, the United States' intelligence community, the CIA's atrocious record in Latin America and South America. She talked about reparations. I mean, it was like a left program that she was talking about for being somebody that kind of stereotypically seems like this, you know, California limousine liberal who like hangs out at the Esalen Institute or something, right? But like, uh, you know, she was talking about left issues in a, in a way that, um, you know, you have to listen to Sanders or Warren to really hear on the stage. She was doing it in her own idiosyncratic way with right. a vocabulary, a rhetoric, and a language that's not the sort of thing that you hear uh, in, like, D.C. think tanks, <laughs> the belt. But it's also a thing that I think, um, you know, Williamson's a person who resonates with millions of people. Millions. She's very popular. Yes. She's a best-selling author. Millions of her books have been sold. I understand that there are all sorts of things... Um, that are problematic in her in her background. You know, her position on vaccines is that's been mis- well. She sometimes has a new age worldview uh, that you could construe as being a little bit too individualist or a little bit too victim blaming. But I don't see anything that she said as being necessarily all that worse than anything that Joe Biden has said. If I'm being honest, you know, I mean, she doesn't have the same baggage as regards race and gender as the presumptive front runner yep. of the Democratic Party does. So I think that the kind of like dismissal of her is one. I think it's it's unwise. Yes, just because I do think that she's offering a message that could be helpful to the Democrats. And two, I also think it's interesting that um, the sort of uh, tea leaf readers of the political class <laughs> who got Trump's election so profoundly wrong yeah. feel free to like tell us that um, you know uh, Williamson's a marginal candidate, or that Alan Yang is a, a right. marginal candidate, or whatever. When there's a popularity for them among people who aren't, you know, part of the chattering class, right? And we didn't get them last time. Hello, you know, these are, mm-hmm. millions of Americans didn't, you know, come out enthusiastically for Hillary Clinton. That she that the DNC neoliberal stuff that ain't going to reach them. It's just not going to reach them. We have we can't win without a lot more people voting for our nominee. Uh, and I, I don't think, I mean, I, Joe Biden, I mean, I'm coming at you from New Hampshire where we're just flooded <laughs> with presidential candidates all the time. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, there, there are a fair amount of people who are saying, well, Joe Biden, you know, he's the center. He doesn't offend anybody. Well, maybe a little bit, <laughs> but he is yeah. the best to win. 
I do not think so. I mean, there were people that I spoke with, independents, uh, undeclared people back in 2015, 2016, who were like, I like Biden. I mean, <laughs> I like Bernie Sanders and I like Donald Trump. I like them both. I could vote for either one. I'm telling you, the Democrats don't get that. <laughs> we need to inspire. No, I think. Go ahead. I think that's totally true. And, I, I, you know, uh, I always go back to, you know, I, Joe Biden is like a person. Like, I, I personally, I kind of like Joe Biden. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I, I like Hillary Clinton as a person. I know that that's on the left. That's a thing that people don't say often, but like <laughs> I do. Um, but I, I think when it comes to um, the DNC and the campaign that the DNC runs, I, you know, I always go back to what Chuck Schumer said in 16 when he said, for every um, voter that we lose in rural Pennsylvania, we're going to pick up uh, two in suburban Philadelphia. Hmm. It was just profoundly untrue. It was like a real, and, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania, uh-huh. and it was a real um, misapprehension, I think, of the, the reality on the ground. And people have politics that, I don't want to say strange, but are surprising. Yes. Right? So when you say that there are people who say, oh, I could vote for Trump or I could vote for Bernie Sanders, like, that, I think, sounds like a person that shouldn't exist using the logic of Washington. <laughs> but I think, um, they do. <laughs> in reality, it's oh, yeah. a thing that's not uncommon, right? And there are reasons for it. It's not necessarily uh, as irrational or as ridiculous as it might first sound. And I think being aware of that reality... Um, is is crucial. I also think the other thing is, uh, is is Biden is kind of in his own way. Is if we're assuming that the DNC is pushing him, which I oh, think yeah. is a fair thing to assume. Oh, but yeah, I don't yeah. know with some recent gaffes. Of course, yeah. uh, I, I think that he's an attempt to try and appeal to that type of like mythic white working class voter. So he's a solution to the problem that they saw with Hillary Clinton, but he's a solution in the wrong kind of direction as well because there's something a little bit cynical about the idea that, like, you know, Lunch Pail Joe from Scranton is going to, like, win back the Rust Belt. He could. I'm not going to say that he isn't necessarily going to. uh, But I think it's the wrong message to get out of what happened in 16. And I think one of the important things to remember is that the Democratic Party wins elections based on its core constituencies. Its core constituencies are African-American voters, are Hispanic voters, uh, are people who self-identify as liberal and I think the important thing is making sure that, one, those people are excited yes. to go and vote for the candidate, yes. because if they're not, you lose. Right. I mean, that is how Democrats won Alabama, is because black women went to the polls. So that's the first thing, is making sure that those people want to vote. Mm-hmm. Number two, making sure that they're able to vote, yeah. because I don't think that we can uh, discount how much voter disenfranchisement uh, from redistricting to oh. laws to whatever else. It's a new Jim Crow. Precisely to prevent, yeah. Of course it is. I mean, you, you demographically look at it. There are states that should totally be blue states. There's no reason why Florida is a red state <sighs> other than uh, sort of chicanery. There's no reason why Georgia should remain a red state. I mean, it should at the very least be a purplish state. But <laughs> no. like Stacey Abrams should be governor of Georgia. And maybe she actually won. Yeah. It's possible, but they exactly. Chicanery, so yeah. I think that when when people like Chuck Schumer are kind of like focusing on like how do we get white working class Trump voters or white middle class Trump voters to vote for a Democrat, like yeah, I don't think that's a bad question to ask. No, it's I don't good. think that that is the only question or the most important question that should be asked. Well, talk about Pennsylvania. I just drove my younger daughter down to uh, her new college, Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. And oh, yeah, yeah. we went 
uh, ways there was a lot of traffic and ways this new newfangled 21st century gizmo uh, for getting from point A to point B took us off the highway went to these little towns these very rural towns and I was wondering huh I wonder if you took a poll of some of these towns how they would react I, I think that what we're talking about might actually work with at least some of them. I don't think they're going to go for, you know, a traditional DNC. They probably went for Trump last time, I imagine. But it would be interesting to to try some spiritual, uplifting sense of meaning stuff with, with the people yeah. in these little towns in Pennsylvania. Now, you know, Pennsylvania is an interesting state. With, with um, I'm from, from the city of Pittsburgh originally, and it's, a, you know, very democratic, oh, sure. a fairly liberal city, right? But it's yeah. always the, the Carville again. Um, Carville famously said that Pennsylvania is two big cities with Alabama in between. Oh, I know it. In a small town. <laughs> I was in Alabama, Pennsylvania yeah. For many years as well, yeah. yeah. And, and I think um, leading into 16, I, I had, and anyone that has ever lived in small town Pennsylvania, uh, had to have known that Trump had a real shot at the state. Uh. Uh, and, the you know, for years and years and years, I... I I think Chris Matthews used to say that Pennsylvania was Republican fool's gold because it looked on paper like it should be a Republican state. It consistently went Democratic from 88 onward until Trump won it in 16. I, I knew that Trump had a real shot in the state because he's not, um, he doesn't come out of that evangelical fundamentalist kind of background at all, obviously, yeah. which I think uh, turns a lot of Pennsylvania, even rural Pennsylvania voters off in a way that excites people south of the Mason-Dixon line, right? So when I realized that the Republicans had nominated a candidate who was not speaking that language, but was still fairly, was still far right, I thought he had a, he had a genuine chance of winning the state, and I was, I was correct on that, right? Uh, I, I think it is interesting when you talk about what Democrats could possibly take Pennsylvania back in 20. Um, and I don't, you know, when it comes to Biden, I don't know. I mean, he's got Pennsylvania roots. He's a very Pennsylvania guy in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think that that does appeal to people. I think he could definitely have have a shot at it. I think gambling everything on just the fact that Biden might carry Pennsylvania is still yeah. not a rational choice to make, right? And it misses the uh, point and, that and we're I talking about. Yeah, it totally misses yeah, the point exactly. that, that we're talking about. And if, for those who yeah. may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're speaking with Ed Simon about his article, Democrats must offer Americans bread and roses to counter national conservatism. And looking to the future, you know, Trump is a symptom of a certain unmet hunger for meaning and purpose and the right's ability to cynically capitalize on it. And you write, what makes this all the more crucial is that despite his seeming unshrinkable base of support, despite his complete enabling by a hypocritical Republican establishment, I would say spineless, despite the Democratic Party's malpractice in not holding him to account, save for the staging of increasingly lame political theater, Donald Trump will thankfully one day not be president. That's the good news. The bad news is that unless we address both economics and meaning, whatever replaces Trumpism could be worse. And that a Donald Trump who is able to spell is a lot more terrifying than the Donald Trump that we have now. Yikes. Please elaborate on that. Sure. So How could it be worse? I think one of the things that I've, yeah, one of the things I've most noted about difference in political analysis between liberals and those who are further to the left 
is I feel like um, liberals are the kind of like, if you know, dismissively the hashtag resistance crowd, like that sort of group of people or people who were very invested in the Mueller report, the, the, that kind of faction, yeah, well. is they tend to see Trump as the beginning and the end of all of our problems. And I think that there's a sense of like, Trump, if he gets out for any reason on a, on a technicality or whatever, then everything can go back to normal, right? Right. And that's not true. No. Because he uh, is not the cause at all. He's not a smart enough person to be the cause of any of it. He is a manifestation and a full flowering and embodiment of these these kind of things. But he's the symptom. He's not uh, the disease so much. He's just a really gross and terrible symptom of the disease. And I think that this is important when you take a look at what's happening internationally. And the, and the problem with more liberal analysis as opposed to left-wing analysis is it doesn't take into account or it doesn't often enough take into account the fact that we are seeing uh, the resurgence of a global unified far right. And this is happening in every Western democracy. We're seeing it with Salvini in Italy. We're seeing it with yes. the Brexiters in Britain. Yes. Uh, we're seeing it uh, with well, Putin, obviously, Orban in Hungary, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, and so on. And I think that Trump is like the, the American face of that kind of phenomenon. And that phenomenon is happening for several different reasons. One is we're seeing the, the crack up of neoliberalism and mm-hmm. kind of its economic uh, failures most come into fruition. So there's a desperate attempt, I think, which fascism is always a desperate attempt to try and save capitalism from socialism at, at the very end, right? Uh, and then I also think it, a lot of it comes out of the sort of worsening ecological situation that we find ourselves in. I don't think that these are conscious forces for most people, but I think this is what's defining this movement. Well, I think- the problem is, um, uh, you know, with with Trump, is Trump is the, the first genuine authoritarian far-right fascist president in contemporary American history, right? Yes. Uh, yes but he's yes. also, uh, you know, he's got an, unca- an uncanny ability to play to the crowd. He's got a certain type of cracked Machiavellian brilliance for being a showman and using spectacle mm-hmm. to keep attention on him. Um, but he's also, in a more literal sense, kind of an idiot, right? Uh, and he's got a lot of handlers that are able to use him in a lot of ways. Um, but if there's been any saving grace, I mean, I think if we think of his administration as a thing stress-testing our democracy, it's really at the breaking point right now. I mean, we've got a string, an archipelago of what are effectively concentration camps on our southern border. Like, things are bad. Yes, they are. If people think that we can return to normal, I think they're they're wrong on that. What I mean, um, or I think they're wrong on that, in that, you know, we need something a little bit more radical to help us kind of out of this morass. I, what I mean by this sort of specter of a Trump who can spell is that uh, the Trump we have wastes a lot of his time on really, really stupid things. If you had somebody with a modicum of organization, of skill, of intelligence, of likability that really went beyond people that kind of thrill at the grossest manifestations of Trumpism, if you had a slightly more respectable Trump who was hitting all the exact same notes, I think what this administration has shown us is that our democracy wouldn't be able to necessarily take that without some really kind of radical restructuring and radical understanding uh, of what's happening. Uh, and because Trump is not the cause of these things, but just a manifestation of it, that means that somewhere, somehow, out there, there is a person, there's a candidate or a politician who could fulfill that role, right? And I think we have to be very wary and very worried and very prepared uh, for what that looks like when that emerges. 
Yeah, it's not. It, it didn't start with Trump, and it's not going to end with Trump. We have to somehow uh, uh, speak to the meaning that people are hungry for. And right now, you know, with those other fascist dictators, uh, as with Trump, you, you get kind of a, a meaning, sort of a transcendent meaning from membership in a group where people kind of look like you. Like, hey, mm. we're white. You know, I'm my tribe is okay. We're going to stick together. And those others, mm. you know, and that, that's very dangerous. And it leads to the concentration camps that we have. One of the, yeah. I, before reading your article, I'd never heard of the junior senator from Missouri, Josh Hawley, H-A-W-L-E-Y. You write, if you're worried about Trump, you need to be paying more attention to Hawley as well. What? <laughs> Please tell us about him. Sure. So the, I was speaking about um, uh, the senator from Missouri, specifically Howley, out of uh, the emergence of this sort of um, loose ideology that is called national conservatism, uh, which is an ominous name yes. for uh, political philosophy. Certainly has some uh, overtones that uh, recall uh, other pernicious political ideologies. But what national conservatism basically is, is an attempt to imagine what Trumpism will look like without Trump. And that's very dangerous because in so much that Trumpism is a personality cult, there is some hope that once Trump is gone, you can kind of begin to rebuild. National conservatism is, um, in a Machiavellian sense, but also like its own intellectual sense, an attempt to try and fashion um, a post-neoliberal right-wing ideology. Hmm. And what it is, is, if you think of uh, conservatism in the 20th century as kind of being um, two things wed together, it's kind of like a you know, supply-side economics, free market economics, right. wed to a certain kind of social conservatism, right? And it's this kind of strange, because um, it's not a natural synthesis necessarily, but this sort of thing that comes out of like, you know, William F. Buckley's writings and, and the National Review and a lot of the neoconservatives and things. Uh, and I think what's happening is that that's starting to to break up as well. That's disappearing. You know, the the era of like the country club Republican is at a close. That is a that yeah. is an endangered species right now. <laughs> oh, for sure. National conservatism speaks a language that, when it comes to economics, is not this kind of like Ayn Rand stuff, right? Uh -huh. They are correctly identifying uh, neoliberalism or libertarianism or whatever you want to call it as being um, something that uh, most people don't particularly like. Most people never particularly liked it. And the people that thought they liked it are realizing that they didn't all along, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So in place of that, and it's interesting because if you read the writings of someone like Howley, right? Like he uh, he talks about breaking up uh, the tech giants. He talks about trust busting Amazon and Google and Facebook. And, you know, in some ways, there's something very progressive about that. Like, I don't necessarily disagree with that in, in a lot of ways. So he's, uh, when it comes to economics, he's speaking um, a more left language. Interesting. But it's to the purposes of a profoundly right-wing social and political vision. And basically, they are... Um, resuscitating an understanding of uh, conservatism where all of the kind of subtle or overt kind of, uh, you know, racial dog whistles are on like full blast or in full display. So the meaning that national conservatism offers is basically an ethnocentric, racialized, extremely nationalistic kind of um, Christian, evangelical Christian-centered understanding of nationhood. It's a return to a type of like, 19th century romantic understanding of like 
the the Volk or something, right? That everyone is, yeah. is unified in this kind of way. Uh, and so at their conference, I guess it was uh, past August or July, they had a conference in Washington, D.C., and Howley was uh, the only elected official to speak at it. But they had a lot of academics uh, who are right-leaning. This was, if you followed the controversy where, I believe her name is Rubin, she's a law professor at University of Pennsylvania. She said something basically along the lines of, uh, we need to privilege immigration from European countries, uh-huh. you know, from Western countries, because sure. they share our values. You mm-hmm. know? And it's just always this very kind of like it's pretty open. nebulous definition of what values means, because what she means is she means white people, right? right? So it's like obviously this kind of um, overt and clear racist definition of, of American um, identity. And, you know, for myself, I come out of, a, from a scholarly perspective, I come out of an American studies background, and I'm, I'm very interested in kind of constructions of American identity. And what's always been remarkable, um, not to sound too maudlin or patriotic about it, but what's always been fascinating about um, some definitions of American identity is it's a covenantal identity, right? It's defined by adherence to a certain type of uh, value. Yes. Value is kind of a democratic self-sufficiency and, and sort of... Um, those sorts of things, right? Not necessarily where you're from or what you look like or, you know, what uh, God or no God you happen to pray or not pray to, right? Yeah. So uh, what the national conservatives are doing is they're redefining nationhood as basically, you know, you're a, you're a Northwestern European, you know, Protestant in that, you know, very traditional, very old-fashioned, very conservative, reactionary understanding of American identity. Uh, and I think that in the 21st century, with ever-diminishing uh, sort of natural resources and, a, and an environment and freefall, you could see that bearing some uh, profoundly noxious fruit, if you're not careful. And yet, certainly, I think we've established that this nationalism, this ultra-nationalism that we've seen, not just in Trump, but in other awful uh, regimes, nationalism somehow stands in place of transcendent. It sort of fills the Mm -hmm. same void. And no matter, looking ahead to uh, the the election, no matter who the Democrats nominate, of course the Republicans are going to scream, socialist! And nearly all the prospective candidates will duck and hide from that accusation like when you turn a light on and the roaches all disappear. (laughs) But one will stand at that label and go on the offense. And that, of course, is Bernie Sanders, who by European socialist standards is hardly left at all. He's more like Eisenhower domestically. But what is it, do you think, about socialism that may offer not just bread, and not just fake roses, but real roses for everyone. I think that, uh, you know, if you go back to sort of the, the writings of, um, you know, 19th century socialist theorists, and they disagree with each other all the time. There's yeah, many different factions. Anyone who's spent any time in left politics knows that, like, you've got two people, but then you have four opinions. Right. right? Like, that's the kind of like... Um, but I, I think that one of the things that's always been part of it is there's this kind of like... So, you know, if you listen to a right-wing stereotype of what socialism is, the irony to me is that they're actually describing life under capitalism, right? So uh, a a conservative will say that under socialism, uh, 
you know, you you don't get to keep uh, the product of your labor and it's taken away from you and you have to work this soulless job. That's what people have to do anyhow. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. For whoever owns the corporation, you don't get to keep the spoils of what comes out of it. Your life is completely uh, kind of regulated into oftentimes uh, BS, if I can say that, jobs, right? Yes, yes. Uh, that you have to work uh, increasingly long hours for and sometimes several different jobs just to kind of make ends meet. Right? But people don't so get that. That's fear. Say is sorry. Is that under you know? If you're given the opportunity to have have your own kind of time, your own space, that you can then begin, um, you know, kind of uh, exploring and thinking about things that, as of now, are only really allowed for the elite or allowed for the privileged. You know, that uh, an old socialist saying from the same era that Breads and Roses became uh, a thing was that uh, under socialism, you had eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, and eight hours for what you will, right? And that eight hours for what you will, that was profound if you're talking about an era in which people worked hours and hours, seven days a week, right? The idea of a weekend is a radical idea. That's true, yes. Uh, that's a, that's a play, you know, it is. I mean, you're talking about a time that is devoted for yourself or for your loved ones or for your family to kind of uh, do what you want to do and to like build yourself as a person. And the thing is, is, you know, in an, in an economy in which we're not given meaning, but absolutely everything we do is monetized. Everything we do sure. uh, furthers the goal of accumulating capital for someone who's not you, uh, that that, that has a, that drains on you. Yeah. That's a spiritually draining kind of thing. And I think that what, socialism or democratic socialism or yeah. social democracy or whatever economic democracy yeah have. those are all different things but uh you know related in a lot of ways is is offering is that eight hours for what you will right as we're talking about um a different way of being in which what you're doing is not always trying simply to survive and if you have a little bit of time devoted to your life where you're not just trying to survive that's where you can find a genuine meaning that's built in um, uh, community, that's built in individual kind of exploration, those sorts of things. And I think that that's, uh, I think that the, the bread and the roses are always connected. You can't have one without the other, right? They are intimately uh, and crucially combined in some ways. But I think that the, I think that the far left uh, and the welcome kind of left turn among a lot of younger uh, right. Democrats, oh, sure. thinking of the like remarkable women who were elected during the midterm elections who the, sit in the House of Representatives right now. Yes. They're really modeling for all of us they are. Uh, a path forward and a way to think about politics that is profoundly different from what the DNC has been offering really um, ever since the uh, you know, 1970s when the, when the Democrats turned away from a kind of left understanding. They, um, so they did. I and think that... Uh, I, I wonder, we have just a couple of minutes left, I wanted to ask about... Oh, sure. Um, you know, the idea of, of, of leisure, of people being able to, as Jung called it, actualize themselves, actuate themselves. Yeah, yeah. And through art, music, you know, gardening, things like that, the do what you will. I, I wonder, you know, I think that's, I, I agree with you, certainly, that's highly important. My question is, you know, we got to win this election. How politically mm -hmm. powerful is this roses aspect of bread and roses? What are your thoughts, Ed? 
I think that if you could, I don't want to wish upon anyone a Democratic Donald Trump. I don't think that that's, and I don't think it would work either, right? Because I think that the sorts of people that tend to vote on a liberal or a left spectrum, I don't think would gravitate to the sort of bloviations of a Trump. And that's a good uh, thing. We should be happy about that. Yes. But I think if we can think of somebody who is able to kind of hack into the traditional way of doing things <laughs> and come up with something uh, a little bit different, uh, I think it could be profoundly powerful. I think that you could, uh, I think you could reinvigorate people who have never voted before. I think you yes. could get people out who haven't voted in a while. I think you could maybe convert some of the ones that have voted in a way that doesn't make me that happy yeah. in the past. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I think that I think it it comes down to roses. I think you offer people a narrative. You offer people a story. You look at the Democrats that have won historically, and they are the ones that have offered a story. Uh, Barack Obama offered a story about citizenship, about American civil religion, about uh, uh, the sort of exemplary and singular nature of being a black man who's able to become president in a country that has been so racially conflicted, right? Uh, for a lot of us, Obama was not as left as he right. could have been or right. as we thought he was going to be, but yeah, well. he offered a profoundly compelling narrative. There was real power in Yes, We Can, right? Bill Clinton offered uh, a sort of story and narrative as well, right? Uh, who who has not offered um, stories, right? The Democrats that have lost have not offered stories, and they're oftentimes uh, I voted for all of them, oh, of know, but I think that um, people like Al Gore, John Kerry, you know, further back I couldn't vote then, but Walter Mondale, Michael Dukakis, they didn't campaign in poetry, or they tried <laughs> to, and it didn't it didn't take, right? I mean, I think that uh, a Democrat has to speak to some sort of transcendence, some sort of purpose or meaning, uh, and I think that that is, that is not to be devalued. I don't think that they can run on a resume. I don't think a CV is what you run on. They'll right. You're, you're more accomplished or smarter than other people. That might be true, and that's great, and I don't think that we should undervalue intelligence either. I think that let the Republicans do that. I think intelligence and expertise are smart. You have to have the roses, right? You have to have something else that really uh, compels people. And that's one thing I wonder about uh, Elizabeth Warren. She says she has a plan for this, a plan for that. Uh, the, where's the poetry there? It's just, it's it's not I there. Think, I, and I wonder if Bernie Sanders can do it. Actually, I disagree with that. I, I think that Liz Warren is a good example of somebody that's running on bread and roses ah. in some ways, because I think that her, I think she's got, her bread is whole grain, right? Like that's some fortifying bread. You get her like True. insight and uh, the, the way in which she lays out the policies is in profoundly detailed. It's very wonky in a lot of ways. Well, yeah. But then, uh, um, but I was listening to her on the radio the other day and her speaking style, her rhetorical style is fascinating to me because it's, uh, I think, professorial in the best way. Mm. And I say that maybe I'm biased because I'm a professor, but like, there's a, a type of teacherly aspect to her that I actually think works well. And people forget that, you know, she's not from Cambridge originally. She's from Oklahoma. Right. She speaks a certain middle American vernacular that's uh, uh, twangy and Midwestern in, in a way. So well, I hope I, she can inspire. She's who has my vote right now. I've got my fears about how she would do in a general election, but I don't know. I think that when she says that we can't vote out of fear for that, we have to vote for who we want to vote for, I think that's an example of a, uh, a type of roses that's being offered by her as a candidate. 
Oh, interesting. It's possible it could happen. Bread and Roses, what a concept. If people want to read more of your stuff, very interesting History News Network, where else can you point them to on that wonderful Internet thing? My uh, website is edsimon.org. Okay. Uh, so if you just go there and under popular writing, every time that I have a new article that comes up, I sort of uh, steadfastly and religiously update that. Well, thank you so much. Very, very interesting perspective here, and I, I hope it helps. Hope we can uh, speak with you again. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. As we go marching, marching, we're standing proud and tall. The rising of the women means the rising of us all. No more the drudge and idler, ten a toil where one reposes, but a sharing of life's glories, bread and roses, bread and roses. Hearts starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses Bread and roses, bread and roses